In John Adams' letter to the Massachusetts militia, he writes, quote, Because we have no government, armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Hmm. Democracy requires morality and religion, according to Adams. As religious participation declines in America and we devolve into a different morality, does our republic hold together? The last few years of public life, America has been saturated with those debilitating characteristics of avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry, as John Adams stated. Let's be clear, we're talking about the greed, the unbridled competition, the vindictiveness and the arrogance that not only dominates, but seems to motivate so many in public life. In this sort of a toxic environment, what are we as Christ followers to do? What are we to do when our coworkers increasingly reflect the culture around us? And what do we do when we see that same culture in ourselves? And yes, I, I said it, we are part of the problem because we too have been influenced. While some of us like to think that we're seeking to be in the world and not of it, the truth is we are failing individual as Christ followers and sometimes corporately as the church. But by God's grace, we can do better. And this is the heart of Nuance. Nuance is a podcast of The Collaborative where we wrestle together about living our Christian faith at work. Nuance is a greatly underappreciated element of our language, our thoughts and our actions, which means we're missing out while becoming a more and more unattractive witness of the gospel. So often, nuance can reveal the beauty, the grace, and the very love of Jesus. These three are foundational to building the much-needed bridge to unity and peace. It is in beauty, grace, and love that the Holy Spirit so often works to make appealing that free offer of believing found in John 3.16. In 2020, America saw so much of the convergence of difficulty with three major social moments, the COVID-19 pandemic, the death of George Floyd, and the U.S. presidential election and post-election fallout. Through these times, the public square infiltrated the church in ways quite shocking, even painful and divisive, and I think comes out wounded. During this time, major political and sociological fault lines within the evangelical American church became more clearly defined leading often to conflict, if not outright schism. Such fault lines had been emerging in subsequent years. But as with many things, the pandemic accelerated much of what was already occurring in people, in families, and institutions. Well, in this inaugural season of Nuance, we're going to wade into the muddy waters of the public square itself, and particularly the way we engage it at our workplace. In our second episode, we're going to explore contrasting ideas about Christian citizenship so that we can get some perspective on our own. In episodes three to six, we're going to consider four characteristics of Christian citizenship and the difference they might make in our careers and our workplaces. The four characteristics of hospitality, principled pluralism, common grace, 
and prophetic voice. At the end of the day, friends, my, my argument is Christians must possess a more biblical Christian citizenship because otherwise we cannot live the transformative missional lives as we see represented in Scripture. And that brings us to today's guest. Vincent Bacote, Professor of Theology and Director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College, affirms the concerns we are raising when he writes, quote, lack of a strong theological basis for Christian involvement in the political sphere can be a problem. So we are excited to explore these themes today with Dr. Bacote. My name is Case Thorpe, and welcome to Nuance. Dr. Baycote, Vince, uh, thank you so much for being here with us. I'm joined with my collaborative co-host, Crossland Stewart. I know that our audience will find Crossland fun, informative, and uh, delightful. So, Crossland, welcome. Great to be here. Uh, Vince, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Um, I have recently really enjoyed this, your book, The Political Disciple, A Theology of Public Life. Uh, really has helped me get my uh, mind around these things. So everyone, go out and buy it. A uh, link to this will be in our show notes. But Vince, thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, it's a privilege to uh, be guest number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, we are thrilled, and we're thrilled to expose our audience to you and your ideas, and we just feel like you can bring some real insight I would love for us to all get to know you a little bit better. And so if you could share a little bit about yourself, but in particular, how did you get interested in this topic of public theology? Sure. So I'm in year 23 at Wheaton. Uh, I'll be married 27 years to my wife, Shelly, on June 17th. Congratulations, yeah, yeah, Shelly. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Congratulations to me, for sure, uh, <laughs> because I'm married to her. Uh uh, we have two daughters. One's uh, graduated from Wheaton a year ago, and the other one is a sophomore. And uh, how did I get into this? Well, you know, uh, basically because of my love for rock music, is, which is probably not what people usually expect to be the answer. But uh, I was always sort of what you would call a culture-affirming Christian or culture, I was, or a culturally inclined Christian. That wasn't my language I like before that. that. But um, the in my formation there was dissonance with, you know, this is the 80s, uh, when, when people were talking about, oh, you like rock music, you're listening to Iron Maiden. Mm. What does that mean? Oh, doesn't that mean that, you, that you're uh, affirming people that are devil worshipers mm. or whatever? They yes. really weren't. It was just kind of, just kind of a thing. I remember so. the day I, with great conviction and guilt, took my Eagle CD and broke it <laughs> because Hotel yes, California. Yes. Mm -mm, mm -mm. yes, yes, yes. And, and, uh, in my junior year, I, with the exception of one cassette, I, I threw out all my secular music. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, how is Deep Purple's Machine Head harmful to anybody? But <laughs> I, I, I threw that out anyway. Of course, by the time my senior year rolled around, I basically rebuilt the whole collection. <laughs> but, but, but it was, I wanted to have a deep commitment to the Lord, and I wanted that to be clear. Um, and I didn't have any language for thinking about how Christians mm. can care about what are things outside the context of the church uh, and that there's a theological rationale for not just 
identifying things that are good or beautiful or true, but also that there are reasons for us to be participating Christianly mm. in the public. And so that so it, it 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 starts with the rock and roll, but it extends to to politics and culture in general, and really, and then it extends to things like faith and work. So really, it's anything outside the doors of the church after the benediction, you might say, our post-benediction life and how those things really matter to us. So it took me um, some time to uh, have more than intuition about why it's proper for us as Christians to be engaged in, in the public. But I felt that it was really important to be able to make a very clear case biblically and theologically for that. Who are some of your? Ah, uh, you got the, the same thing. Ah, yes. <laughs> your current uh, music uh, folks you like? Well, it's all over the place. Um, I have to say, by the way, in my in my family, uh, K-pop has taken over the, the household. K-pop is that uh, like Korean? Oh, yes, yes, okay. it is. My my daughter's listening to K-pop all the time, which means, of course, that my wife and I are listening to K-pop all the time. But if you come into my office, you could hear Bowie, you could hear, um, you could hear jazz. I, I love jazz, jazz fusion. I love sort of traditional jazz. I'm going through this list of 100 greatest jazz albums that a, oh, wow. uh, a, a magazine put together. You might hear Electronica, so you could hear something like Zero Seven or Massive Attack. Wow. You might hear uh, classical music. I, I, I like classical music as well. You might occasionally hear opera. It, you know, you'll hear a lot of things. It's I'm pretty eclectic. That's cool. You and and you will occasionally hear metal. By the way, just, just <laughs> to, it, it, the metal has not gone away. Well, what I was going to ask is, who are some of your influencers from a Christian worldview, or sure. who began to give you a vocabulary to not only talk about it, but sure. more importantly, to think about it. Initially someone who was saying that we ought to be engaged that way, not so much giving me the category, but talking about the fact that we should, was my exposure to Francis Schaeffer yeah. in the late 80s. Yeah. And what, but what really uh, opened the door for me uh, in a lot of different ways uh, was my engagement with the, I say, obscure to some Dutch Calvinist, Abraham Kuyper. It was reading about, it was reading his lectures on Calvinism, really, that was where I began to get a kind of theological framing. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, I, it's also where in that book, before the book was over, that I also got my ability to become a critical thinker because those pictures in my office, it's out the view of my camera here, but um, I also had to contend with the fact that he would be um, surprised that someone like myself was your first guest and someone like myself would have a PhD. In other words, he was a racist. Uh, and so yeah. I had to deal with the fact that somebody was, uh, we'll yeah. keep up the music metaphor here, uh, that you really like the song that you heard on the radio. So you buy the album and you like most of the album. But then as you're going through the album, all of a sudden you're thinking, no, wait a second. How did that song get? Yeah. I don't like that song. Yeah. Why, why is that song on the album? And then I had to ask, because that song's on the album, does that mean it taints everything on the album? And I think that that was for me the critical thinking move. What were the things in Kuiper that were so helpful to me, particularly the doctrine of common grace? Mm. Uh, how were those things related 
to what Kuiper was saying about uh, race. And my, my argument would be that uh, you can see how the way that he might talk about some of the application or expression of comic race, how it unfolds in history, mm. some his his uh, cultural hegemony, we'll say, uh, <laughs> comes through in some of his articulation of that. Uh, but the the doctrine itself does not require that explanation of development. Mm-hmm. So 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 making that distinction was very important to me. Uh, but mm. it was a crisis for sure because I was thinking until I got to a certain point in lectures on Calvinism, a certain point being six pages from the end, that I'm ready to go all the way with you, uh, Father Abraham. Uh, and then <laughs> then all of a sudden, uh, I, it was like, well, Abraham wasn't necessarily interested in being called father by someone like myself, I guess. So it was, it was a bit of a, a, a major challenge. But the gift of that was dealing with the fact that any figure has feet of clay. So what I tell students, what I tell anybody is any figure not named Jesus, the closer you get to them, the longer you hang out with them, the more you find out how they are definitely not messianic figures. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what happens is the way that we understand figures or the way that we are presented with figures, they get a kind of a messianic imprimatur. You know, they're, they're these one-dimensional figures that, oh, you must read everything that they said because mm. they're the greatest. And it suggests that everything you read will just be helpful. And it suggests that, that, that maybe they talked about everything you care about. Yeah. And what, what you will discover is they may not have talked about everything you cared about. They may have talked poorly about some of the things you cared about, but they may be really helpful in other ways. And so I think it's important to be able to say, Kuiper's great for faith and public life in so many ways, but he's also a person with feet of clay, so you can't expect him to take you everywhere you need to go. Right. It's, I really appreciate that because um, in the last two, three years, it seems like so many of American historical figures or people in leadership in high-profile positions uh, just get torn down with cancel culture, uh, not knowing that, yeah, we have uh, feet of clay. Uh, right. 2020 and since then, things have been rough. Uh, now the mm-hmm. Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade. How do we think about Christian citizenship? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, what we have to understand is that as human beings in the United States of America, we have a way of thinking about citizenship that's very unique because we live in the modern world, in a modern society where it, the possibility of our kind of republic exists, our kind of republic that actually makes possible uh, and the kind of agency where you know someone may be saying in some elementary school today and i want to say to you today boys and girls one day any of you could be president of the united states of america now of course we haven't even had 50 presidents so it's not going to be most of these people but <laughs> the point is that we do have literally a republic that's supposed to be the people, you know, by and for the people, but and the people can actually serve the public as citizens. That has not been the case for most of world history Good for point. most people. So the point is that with that in mind, when we think about Christian citizenship, the, the question is, one, as a citizen of God's kingdom, how do I have that first loyalty? And then how do I function out of that first loyalty 
in an environment where I have the opportunity to help bring public good to, to, through politics. Now, politics is not the only way to bring public good. You can do it through you know, the kind of culture you have in a business. You can do it through what you do in art. You can what you do in medicine. Well, I'm a pastor. You do in education. So, so there are lots of ways to do that. Um, but by the, the point I want to make is that we have an opportunity to serve, and the way that we think about that opportunity to serve should not first be determined by the fact that some people serve poorly or serve selfishly. Mm. And I think the reason that some people are nervous about politics is they think that it uh, encourages, enables people's worst inclinations. Yeah. And for some people it does, but it seems to me that those people, any situation where they had power and influence, it was, it, those inclinations would be functioning the same way. Mm. So is the mm. problem that people do it poorly or is the problem politics itself? And I think it's very important to understand that the problem is not politics itself, but the problem is poor stewardship of politics. Hmm. And the problem sure. is also, I think, from a Christian point of view, people not understanding how their faith orients them to at least be attentive and at most to be involved in politics, especially if you're in a context like the United States, where a citizen can become somebody who serves in political office, whether that's hmm. the town council yeah. Or whether sure. that's in Congress or whether it's all the way to the White House. Well, and that's always been one of my hopes through our work at the Collaborative, that we might re-inspire people for civil service. It's gotten such a bad rap. And uh, how many people today go, oh, I want my child to be a congressman or <laughs> to work in the mayor's office. And yet we're a downtown church here at First Presbyterian Orlando. And I <laughs> It's true. I'm, I'm trying to think if I've ever heard anybody say that. Now that you've, now right. you've mentioned that, right? It's true. Somebody, somebody says I'm running for Congress, and we're like, why? But yet, yeah. Yeah. we got to stay involved. I've yes. been yes. personally inspired by a number of the city and county employees that I've gotten to know, and it's really redeemed my understanding of their civil service because they're some. Uh, a friend of mine is just as passionate about um, environmental controls through the city's driving fleet as I am about the gospel. And um, yeah, we need to help inspire folks in that. Do you think because of what we're seeing, though, uh, America as a republic might, might be at a tipping point? Uh, everybody, oh, the decline, the decline. But Yeah, uh, what I like to say is that history has ebbs and flows. There may be things that are genuine dangers but the fact of danger does not mean a guarantee of the worst expressions of that danger or experience of that danger. Because I remember uh, watching Henry Louis Gates uh, being interviewed and saying, in 1850, who thinks that slavery is going to be you know, outlawed in 1863? Mm -hmm. So... Um, there were definitely people who wanted that to, to happen, but how likely was that? Who, who thought that that was going to happen? My point is that that was a positive development mm. that occurred. Uh, and and what, I think um, we don't know what kinds of things may occur. Because I think one of the weird things about the polarization right now is that it indicates how fearful people are. It indicates how 
uh, probably isolated and unstable people feel like their lives are. And one of the reasons I think that people feel that way is because there's this narrative in the United States that basically says, it's your right to have the life that you desire, the life that you craft. And, and the thing is that from liberal to conservative, right, from arguably, if you will, from anarchist to the most you know, far right person, all of them are in this country where, where, the, where our public servants say, here we are in the greatest country in the world where you can have the life you want if you vote for me. <laughs> I'll further enable your possibilities to have that life that is your right to have because you're in these United States. And my point is, is that when everybody has that expectation and they think that there are things that are threatening that right, mm. then what happens? Well, people don't know what to do and, and, and they look for people to blame. And, and the point isn't that there's not anybody to blame ever. It's just that there are dynamics that occur that of course are going to create instability and fear and anger and distrust. And of course, there's also the fact that you know, many people talk about, you know, sort of the erosion of institutions or the, or the yeah, suspicion that... of institutions. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, the irony about that is, is that, well, it's not that there aren't critiques that are needed of institutional life, but um, if no one's running those institutions, oh everybody's going to be yeah. mad that they're That's not right. there. Yeah, everybody hates so, them until they're not there anymore. Exactly, exactly. So I think um, that with all of the things being unsettled, there's still the possibility of what's unsettled going in a direction that can be constructive and not necessarily further chaotic. Um, but, but I think it's going to take um, people, you know, having a big exhale. And it's been hard for people to do that with um, the, the instability that there was. I mean, prior to the 2016 election, there was already some of this instability on the left and the right. Sure. Uh, and then, uh, you know, then we get this pandemic and just the weight of that on people, no matter what you think about it, the fact is that it is imposing itself upon people. And again, in a country where there's all this language about your agency to do what you want <laughs> yeah. and your experience and, and your life experience is now being one where you are being limited in being able to do what you wish because of something you can't even see, a virus. Right. Mm. So, mm. so that's really hard for people that have been told, you know, in these United States, <laughs> you have the agency, basically, I'm going to use theological language here, you have the agency to create your own personal realized eschatology. Yeah. Your version of the kingdom of God as you wish it to be for you, your personal shalom. That's good. And, and when people see that, that is threatened, whether they're on the left or the right, they're thinking, well, but you said it, I, it's, I'm supposed to have this. I, because, because if you're in Saudi Arabia, you're not thinking this. Yeah, no. that, okay. that's right. That's right. No. So I'm not running for Congress today or 10 years from now that I oh, can Are you see. proud of somebody who, are, are there people though that you're encouraging to run for Congress? That's my question. Oh yeah, of no, course, so, of course. Crossland, but, I would vote for you. I would vote for you. <laughs> but here's the question. 
beyond a political figure. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm called to my corner of the garden, if you will. And Mm -hmm. how do I encourage people to exhale, to live out of something other than fear? Uh, Because right now, I feel like there's not much difference between the believer and the non-believer in terms of Mm. our responses. Mm. Sure. Uh, Unfortunately, I have to concur with you. You know, the the idealist and optimist in me would go, oh, it's not really like that crossing. You know, (laughs) that's what what I'd like to say. But unfortunately, I think there is a lot that is indicating that, that you're, I think you're onto something. And what I would say is just look back to what, what happened in churches several weeks ago or a few weeks ago. We celebrated Easter. Now, if you are a Christian and you celebrate Easter and you actually said you believe what, what Easter is about, Jesus being raised from the dead, Jesus overcoming death, if you really believe that, why are you acting like God is unable to handle whatever is happening in these United States? <laughs> Yeah. These United States, by the way, that are not at the center of like his plan for salvation history, because there are no Western Hemisphere countries are mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about American exceptionalism, that we, we're very a unique Bible country. scholar. <laughs> so, but but I, I think it's important for people to understand that you can say that we're a country with uh, what I would say a, a very imperfect Judeo-Christian background. Um, but we but. Uh, none of that means that we are somehow central to what God is doing. Um, but but we do have the opportunity because of the agency in this country, I think, for Christians to mm. be people it, through what they're doing just generally as citizens, whether that's whether that's being constructive people at the school board rather than people that are losing their minds at the school mm. board, uh, to 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 actually thinking about having some just 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 attention, if you will. To what's going on with your congressman, mm-hmm. uh, or, or 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 what's going on with your mayor, etc. I think there is the opportunity for people to say, "Listen, I'm not expecting politics to bring in the fullness of the kingdom of God, but can I look at at least one or two things where there's a way that we can think about how to love our neighbors, that neighbor love." can happen through what happens in public policy. And are there ways to do that? And the point isn't that you're, that, that that is the most perfect expression of love, but, but can some good come to the public through these things? And of course, the thing is, there are a lot of things that are already good that happen that we just take for granted. If you have you know, traffic lights that work, you don't worry about whether, you, you don't complain about that. You just, you just are appreciative that traffic is managed by having them. Now, what if you didn't have traffic lights, or what if you never had anybody repairing potholes, or just those types of things? It's like, well, you 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 just assume you're going to go from point A to point B. Well, why can you assume that? There are countries where you cannot assume that. Mm, You go across bridges. Can you can you assume that that bridge is a safe bridge that you're going across? Well, why can you assume that's a safe bridge? Well, somebody's doing something that you don't have to think about. It's something that you're able to take for granted. And my point is that that happens because people see that there's this public interest thing called transportation <laughs> that we want to be safe, that we want to, there to be consistency so people can do things like 
go to their jobs or or since we're talking about you in Orlando, go to theme parks or, or 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 go to other places. Uh and it's we just get on the road. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and, and it's a real simple example. But the point is, is that political life, a lot of it is very mundane things, making mm-hmm. it possible to have these kinds of things. Then you don't have to think about it because we took care of it. Well, and so that's like this concept of the public square. So much of it we take for granted, maybe mundane. You've mentioned the school board meeting, the Transportation Department, Congress. Talk to us about our workplace. And it, it sometimes is not so mundane because it's so in our faces and it's where most people actually. Right. So what is a public square and how do you see work fitting into that? Sure. Well, first of all, I think the public square is anything that is outside of the church, the public. I love you know, how many ago you said a, everything after the benediction. Exactly. Everything after the benediction. Now, arguing, somebody say, well, it's family life, the public square. OK, no. Well. Most families, you know, I mean, because, you know, you know, we are in this world with, you know, influencers, et cetera, that they're making their family lives public square things, right? Mm. Because they're putting into the public these things about at least their curated versions of themselves. Yeah, my, my daughter, uh, actually, I have to now get permission before I post her on Facebook. But hey, I get it. And so I respect that. Now, I didn't yeah, get her permission yeah. to mention her on the podcast, but. I'll probably have to pay her money. <laughs> well, you didn't mention her name, though. So we, we only know that that, well, that there's a daughter. I do have That's another all- deal. <laughs> if I mention my kids in a sermon, I have to pay them. And if I say them by name, I have to pay them even more. <laughs> wow. And our, my senior pastor says that eventually in college, they start bringing you illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, so I think it, the, the important thing is, 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 is the public square is uh, the world outside of our private domain, right? Or, mm-hmm. and, and outside of our, I would say our, if you will, institutional, e- ecclesial domain. And, and it is a domain where as Christians, we don't stop being Christians when we're, when we're in that domain. And so then it is for us to discern how to function Christianly in there. So, so the public domain, of course, includes politics, includes, you know, the judiciary, it includes education, it includes medicine, et cetera. It, and it certainly includes our workplace where m- m- people spend all these hours. Yeah, and so I do many. think a lot of people, um, they don't understand how, even if you are in a job that is a repetitive labor job, there is still a perspective that you can bring to this um, that, you know, it doesn't have to be that this is bringing you the most meaning because, you know, your job should not be an idol. So it is not your God, the thing that is giving you meaning. It can be, for a lot of people, one of the ways that they are li- really living out and living into the vocation that God has for them. Uh, and when they're doing that, then the question is, how are they thinking about what is it, depending upon my level of responsibility, depending upon the kind of relationships yeah. that I have, depending upon what my work does, what are the ways that at the very least, I can think about bringing good to where I am. At the very least, thinking about that. You can be thinking about bringing transformation 
But mm-hmm. bringing transformation, I think, depends upon, well, what are the actual possibilities for transformation? If I'm in a law firm and I'm not a partner and I, and I just started in a law firm, or mm-hmm. if I'm you know, an office assistant or something, well, I'm probably not the person most likely to be leading transformation. I might be able to occasionally say something or do something that gets people thinking about mm. things, but that's going to be driven by the people that have, that, are, that are the culture shaping it. Yeah. And, 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 and the leaders of, of that situation. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that there are Christians who have these, who do have these positions. And a lot of times their formation has not helped them to understand how being a Christian has anything to do with what they do. And I always think it's interesting if somebody says about business or whatever it is, well, you know, this is the way it's done. I always think to myself, no, it's the way it was created by certain people mm. and it functions that way. So it is a cultural artifact is mm. what it is because people were not doing it that way a hundred years ago. And it can be changed. They, exactly. Exactly. And with all the ways that people talk about innovation, particularly because of the role of tech, I think um, we really, we actually know that people are, that there are always people who are making changes and transformations to what happens in a work environment or what a company does, et cetera. And so where are the Christians who are thinking about that is an expression really of their opportunity to steward life in God's world? Sure, sure. Which is my way of thinking about back in Genesis 1, when God says, you know, have dominion over the creation, that doesn't mean, ah, you get to rule over the creation and just burn as much stuff as you want to burn. No, No, it means you have... Exactly. You, you have a responsibility to the God who gave you this responsibility. You have to, a responsibility to him to steward well the domain that you're under. Mm. I sometimes tell students, what do you call a good ruler? Or what do you call a bad one? Well, you call them a poor steward of their kingdom or a good steward of their kingdom mm. because they're managing it well or they're managing it poorly. It's a stewardship opportunity. And so what are we doing with those stewardship opportunities in the workplace? And I think a lot of times there's, it, there just isn't the, the mindset about how is this a stewardship opportunity? That's great. It's just how is it a, this is what I do, this is how I make my money, et cetera. And I know for some people, you know, work is a grind, it's hard, et cetera. But I think even in those situations, mm. there's the question of still, who am I? in the midst of this challenging, difficult work. And what is, you know, is there, is there something I can learn from lament Psalms by the challenges of what's going on mm-hmm. in my work? And, the, and that influences my disposition where I can be honest about the challenges because the Psalms are very honest, but my honesty is expressed to a God who's greater than what I'm experiencing. Mm-hmm. And which doesn't mean to, to downplay anything, but, but the point is, is that, that my disposition at the very least will be different rather than just being just joining in on being, you know, complaining like everybody else. I love that. I mean, the stewardship idea is huge. And to think, you know what, I may not be the uh, CEO or vice president, but I have stewardship over my desk, over my work product, over my participation in a team. Um, Even here at our church, uh, we've been working hard on staff culture. And some people right. might think, what? At a church? And yet we're broken people. And we had some kind of built-in ways of doing things and, uh, re- and, and a- interacting with one another. 
and they they needed to be redeemed a bit. And after two or three years now of working on that, we've really seen some beautiful progress. Why do you think the church is so inept, though, at helping to form us? Uh, <laughs> or even talking about it. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the other thing. It's, it just isn't even talked about. As... Wow, you, that really struck a chord of laughter in you. <laughs> well, no, 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 no one has ever put the question that way. Well, I have to give Crossland credit. Inept. She wrote this question. In, yeah, why, why are they so... <laughs> we... So well, you did say, okay, you did say that, but it just never been put it that way. I mean, I've certainly suggested it, but. The, the, we're, but we're straightforward I'm, I'm, people here. I'm just. Uh, I, I see. I see. Wow. Wow. Um, I think it's because if you have, well, here's a good way to put it. If you perhaps unintentionally have a way of going about the faith where you pit redemption against creation. And where redemption is escaping from the creation and redemption yeah. is about only an eschatological future that we have with God in the by and by. Uh, and, and that faith is about uh, being rightly related to God through Jesus. So it's about your transaction with God. And yeah, you go to church and everything and you have fellowship and stuff. But it's really this quote unquote spiritual thing. And spiritual is lifted up away from God's world. Then. The, your only, the only reason you engage God's world is just to mm. introduce people to the spiritual reality that will then um, be good for them in the end. Uh, but in the meantime, it gives you nothing when it comes to thinking about something as simple as asking the question, what does it mean to love my neighbors everywhere, including these public square domains? And that, and that is, is it even part of my framing to think about Second grace commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. What does that look like everywhere? And also, it's, count, it's, it's, it's counterpoint, where am I seeing ways that people are having neighbor love antagonized? Where are my neighbors being dehumanized, mm. not treated like neighbors? So, and, and I need am to step I in. Even thinking, yeah, yes, exactly. And mm-hmm. am, am I thinking about that? Uh, and then, of course, on top of that, the, the first of the grace commandments, love God above everything, am, am I oriented towards God in a way where I have an idolatry sensor mm. that is helping me to understand ways that things that God has made in the world, people can strangely, mm. in ways that aren't at all obvious, but they can be genuine, they can be genuine idol makers of all types of things that God made in the world. Because, mm. I mean, idolatry is essentially trying to replace the creator with the creation and worshiping something in the creation and elevating that thing. An idolatry sensor. I love that. And if that's what, what, what's happening, uh, or if you're helping people to think about that, then you're still getting them to think about, all right, how am I living with fidelity to God in his creation without confusing the creation with him? Yes. Serving him in that creation because it's his creation. He never abandoned it. And I also think another thing that happens is it's as if Genesis 3 obscures Genesis 131 for people. Mm. So Genesis 3, you get the fall. Right. And then what God said, Genesis 131, God looked at what he made. It was very good. Instead, what happens? People think, well, you know, after the fall, God said, yeah, I'm going to kind of give up on it. And they're going to just, um, well, I mean, I'll keep them alive, but uh, they'll. <laughs> 
they'll they'll just kind of run around like crazy people until Jesus comes. And then even then, it's just like making a you know vertical transaction possible for them. But I'm not going to do anything with this at the end. In fact, in some people's eschatology is, I'll tell you what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to blow up that creation and just make mm. another one altogether. Mm. So the strong discontinuity between the world that we have now and the world in the future, for some people, that di- having that, that kind of strong discontinuity dissuades them from any kind of engagement because yeah. they're thinking, oh, that's worldly. I shouldn't be involved in that. So I think those things orient people to, strangely, just mm-hmm. kind of do what other people do in the public domain, uh, except maybe they want to evangelize. Uh, and they don't understand that, no, you know, going back to Easter, for example, Jesus was incarnate in the flesh, a body like ours. He dies, he bleeds in that same body, and then he's resurrected in that body, and he shows the marks of his wounds. Mm-hmm. He's so. He's raised in a body, which means if, if nothing else is telling you this, this is that's the thing that's telling you God is reclaiming his creation. For sure. Because otherwise, I mean, why, why, does, why does Jesus need to get up in a body? In fact, why does he mm-hmm. need to come in a body if God doesn't care about his creation? And he calls us to co-labor, to help in that exactly. reclaiming. Exactly. Well, exactly. I want to encourage our listeners to learn more of Dr. Baycoat's uh, insights and uh, receive some of his writings, visit his website at www.vincentbacot, but it's B-A-C-O-T-E, vincentbacote.com. And um, there will also be a link to his page and his books in our show notes. Vincent, thank you so much. We really learned a lot today. It's been it's great. I mean, there's like so much, well, there's so much to talk about. And obviously, it's been very memorable. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're the first guest, so thank you. We we got it done. <laughs> thank, you. thank you so much. It's a privilege. Crossland, that that was so good from Vince. He 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 knows his stuff. Oh, he gave us so much to chew on, and I feel like we could have talked to him for several more hours. He's somebody I'd love to have lunch with. Uh, he's just got great insights. So what are some of your favorite rock pop groups? (laughs) Well, you know, while y'all were listening to rock and pop, I mean, I love James Taylor, which is not so much in that category, but I'm more of a country music person. So, Ah, you know, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I tell you, I loved his phrasing. um, And at some level, so many of the concepts he was talking about, he really just kind of baselined it, particularly when you think about the definition for public theology. Mm. It's anything post-benediction. I love that. I can remember that. Totally. Everything after the benediction. So um, what were some of the things that stood out in your mind? Well, I wrote down that phrase, everything after the benediction. Now, a lot of times we'll use the term missional living. And well, what does missional living mean? And what does it look like? And uh, missional living, I guess, could also be synonymous with public theology. It's everything after the benediction and that deep desire for people to see their work through the lens of the cross, exercise their work through the lens of the cross, um, steward their responsibilities in a way that reflects the cross. And a lot of times we haven't been taught or shaped or encouraged to think that way. Yeah. You know, I was struck by his uh, 
wisdom and maybe even courage to name Abraham Kuyper as one of mm. his uh, profound influencers to help yeah. him think about this particular area. When, as he was began to study him, he realized, oh my gosh, this man is a racist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and just the acknowledgement that you know what, um, uh, we all have feet of clay. Mm. Unless we're talking about Jesus, mm. guess what? Yeah. We yeah. all miss the mark, but that that does not negate the good wisdom and the truth yeah. that Kuiper was talking about as he was framing and providing language and vocabulary and a way to even think about the public square yeah. and the importance of public theology. Well, um, for those that may not know... Abraham Kuyper was a pastor in the Netherlands who found his platform of the church just wasn't enough, eventually ran for parliament and became the prime minister in the early 1900s. Right. And also during that time was the um, colonization in parts of Africa and uh, the Boer Wars in South Africa that the Dutch were involved with. And so Kuyper supported a lot of the um, racial segregation in the colonies that ended up becoming apartheid. So that is a huge stain on his story. But for sure, like, I know Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, and this is a big cultural topic right now. But can we take the powerful things he did and wrote about democracy and at the same time recognize uh, the failures there? And uh, I appreciate that, yeah, Kuiper's not perfect, but. They're still good there. And we're going to talk about that later as we look at the idea of common grace. Um, I loved how he talked about the ebbs and flow in culture, that who in 1850 would have imagined in 1863 slavery would be outlawed, and that uh, we're kind of in an ebb and flow, a, a big shift right now, 2021, 22, with all the things going on in society. And so... If anything, while I'm sad for a lot of the division, I'm grateful it's causing us as Christ followers to reconsider, okay, how do we need to be discipled and how do we lead through this and how do we uh, represent Christ through an ebb and a flow? And it's also encouraging to think that maybe if we're in the polarization now that, you know, the next ebb is going to be greater unity. Well, I hope that for our listeners uh, this has been an encouraging time together. Crossland, good to see you. See you next time. Good to see you as well. We believe strongly that great conversations can stir hearts and minds. To further encourage this, we've included a link in the show notes to a spiritual formation exercise related to today's discussion. Help us spread the word about Nuance. Like the show, share, and subscribe so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative, the faith and work ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Orlando. Nuance is produced by Candy Goats PJ Weary and edited by Zach Baldwin. Music composed and performed by Fletcher Wilson. Nuance is made possible by the generosity of the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Jr. Foundation. For more episodes, visit collaborativeorlando.com our YouTube channel named The Collaborative Orlando, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our three different fellowships, vocational guilds, and other programs, to subscribe to our newsletter, our bi-monthly blog, 
visit us online and join us on social media. On behalf of Crossland Stewart and myself, thanks for joining us. And remember that most of life is not black and white, but rather lived in the nuance.